This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. Welcome to Is It Philosophy? Here we are the seekers of truth. We are the askers of the questions. We are the answerers of those questions? Maybe. I don't know. Each episode, myself and a guest or two will start with a question. Then we will set out on a journey to find an answer. In the end, it's up to you to determine, is it philosophy? All right, guys, we are back for another episode. Today, we are joined by Dylan Darty from the podcast, None Dare Call It Ordinary. And Dylan actually has a very unique perspective, at least I hope he does, on philosophy and our topic today on what is reality. So Dylan, how's it going? That's going pretty good. How about yourself? I certainly can't complain. I'm actually excited about this topic. That's good to hear. It's good to hear. This topic was the launching point for this whole idea for this podcast. I was at work having a conversation. I don't know if you've seen it, the, uh, the Avengers Infinity Wars. I have not seen it yet, no. Ah, okay, great movie. Uh, I won't spoil too much of it. Okay, good. In the movie, the, the villain Thanos has to collect the Infinity Stones. And one of the Infinity Stones is the Reality Stone. Mm-hmm. And that is actually what launched this whole idea for this show is what exactly does that stone control? What is reality? And how do we define what is real and what isn't? Yeah, I mean, that seems to encompass all sorts of things. And it's kind of strange to think that it's a separate stone from the other ones. You would imagine the other stones, I, I'm trying to, again, my, my knowledge is, is thin on the ground when it comes to these movies, but I think there's a soul stone and a mind stone, maybe? There's the soul stone, the mind stone, the, I think it's called the time stone. Mm-hmm. I forget all of them. It's been a while since I've seen the movie. I had to brush up on before I go see Endgame, but. I gotcha. Because, yeah, I would think those are all encompassed by reality, so. I would agree, and so. When you sent the the message to me about this show, you put in two ideas related to philosophy or uh, reality, mm-hmm. and can elaborate on those for me a little bit because I, I read them, but I'm still kind of intrigued by by the idea there. So I think it's useful to start with those ideas. How philosophers tend to see the project of answering questions like "What is reality?" So it often starts. A good place to start is with the philosopher W.V.O. Quine wrote a paper called On What There Is. And he said, the question, what is there, actually has a really simple answer. And the answer is everything. But that's not a very satisfying answer because people disagree about cases. And so philosophers who work on this question who are called metaphysicians, and that doesn't mean that they're working that doesn't mean that their books are in the new age section of your local bookstore. It's really addressing these questions about what the world is like. And I, th- I believe the two ideas I sent to you, one of them is a position called muriological nihilism. If I'm not mistaken, was one of the uh, suggestions I made. I believe so. Yeah. And that is, has to do with the relationships between parts and holes, which is called muriology. And a, a useful starting point here is the question about, so we, you know, as we go day by day, we imagine that, you know, all the objects we see are composite and that they're made of parts. So your car has, has wheels and an engine and a carburetor. Your house has doors and walls and, and a ceiling. 
And we imagine most of what we encounter has parts. And if we imagine something that doesn't have parts, we might imagine whatever particles our local physicists are cooking up in, in, in CERN or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so the philosopher who really, I think, made this question about parts and holes really clear in this context is named uh, Peter Van Inwagen. And he asked the question, when you have two things, when is it the case that they make up a whole? So when is it the case that two things come together to form a new object? And he called this the special composition question. And meteorological nihilism answers, never. This never happens. And the position is that, in fact, there are no composite objects. So even though we talk about cars and houses and books and computers and animals and people and all the rest, it turns out none of these things really exist. So the, to the answer, the, one of the answers to the question, what is reality, is that reality is simple. Reality consists of partless objects, maybe you know, electrons and quarks and things of that nature, depending on how the final physics shakes out, maybe you know, fields or something along those lines. Again, I think at this point, the metaphysician is going to just defer to the physicists to answer questions about which simple things there are, but the metaphysician, the meteorological analysis is going to say, whatever there is, it's simple. It doesn't have parts. And I brought it up because I, I think it's, it's a fun view and it's also very perplexing. <laughs> and I think someone who is not familiar with these debates might wonder if metaphysicians have, you know, lost their grip on reality perhaps, or, uh, you know, what they're up to and why they would have a position like this. I, I definitely think that's a fascinating idea. And it, it kind of falls in line with the, uh, there's an idea in Buddhism about non-self and there is no mm-hmm. self and there is no yeah. you. And to me, that that's kind of falls in line with that because if there is no, no object, no reality, no, nothing to grab hold of, so to speak, then there definitely cannot be a, a self and a you. Yeah, absolutely. And there is, I believe, Oh, I am, Oh, what is the name of the paper? I cannot remember the name, but there is a paper called I Do Not Exist. <laughs> and it it argues along these, these lines that meteorological nihilism is true, and so people don't exist. And Hume had a view like this, too, where Hume, you know, he talked about introspecting and trying to find his self. And he said, you know, I introspect and I find various sensations, I find various thoughts, I find various feelings kind of rattling around in there, but I don't find anything that I can call myself. I just find all of these separate mental items, thoughts, feelings, sensations, what have you, but I don't find some unifying element called myself. And so this idea, as you mentioned, it's, it certainly has a pedigree in Eastern philosophy, but it's also, there's also a strain of it in Western philosophy as well. Really? Yeah. What would that be out of curiosity? Because I'm now now you intrigued me. Yeah, so I, I would say like the Hume line, for example. I would say more recently. I, I, so I think there's Hume. I think there's the general idea of identifying what the self could be, and this question about is there something over and above the kind of individual mental items that make up our lives, the various thoughts we have, our desires, our intentions, etc. And then more. Recently, I think there are these questions about composition, and there's these questions about whether there are composite objects. And if there are no composite objects, again, 
that would be another situation where we don't exist. So on that idea, there's a show on you on what is on Netflix called Black Mirror. Mm-hmm. And I watched an episode with my wife last night and it, it kind of lends itself to this idea where it's an elderly, it's a old folks home, elderly home, whatever it's called. I don't remember, mm-hmm. but these, these elderly people live in this old folks home. They, they connect themselves to this device that puts them into this other reality. It's all in the mind and it all exists on a, in, on a cloud somewhere. And basically the idea is you go, you test this world out. And then when you die, you can choose to be uploaded to, to this reality, so to speak. I got you. Yeah. I think I've seen that episode. It's, it's a great episode. My wife hates watching those with me because I was <laughs> all night last night going, but what if, and, and she's like, just shut up, go to bed. I'm done. <laughs> and I knew this was coming up. So that's why I kind of wanted to watch it again. But it, it kind of lends itself to the idea of, of what is truly real. Is it real because you can touch it, feel it, taste it, smell it? Or is it real because you perceive that you can touch it, feel it, taste it? Like the idea of loading yourself to the cloud. Mm-hmm. The things on the cloud aren't real as we would think right now. But if it interacts with your brain and your brain is telling you, hey, this thing exists, does that not make it real? So I think, I think we could take a few different perspectives on this. I think so one is to recognize that we're in a similar situation right now more likely. So even if we assume that we are not in the matrix or we assume that we aren't a simulation or assuming, you know, we haven't yet been uploaded into the, uh, our post-death uh, cloud service, we're already in a situation where what we perceive and the way the world is are radically different. Mm-hmm. So for example, I have my hands on this desk and I'm feeling, you know, it feels solid to me. I feel the pressure coming back. But if what the physicists say is right, this desk is mostly empty space. Um, so it's there's a, a disconnect between the world I perceive, which is a world of relatively solid, colored objects, where if we go to the fundamental layer of physics, things don't have colors, at least it looks like. Um, thing, it's basically a buzzing confusion of quarks and protons and what have you. And so I think we are already in this situation. We don't even have to imagine a black mirror type scenario where there's a question about the distinction between what we perceive and what the world is actually like. And so I think no matter what, we're going to have to confront this. We're going to have to think deeply about, well, what is this relationship? So a useful terminology here comes from the philosopher Wilfred Sellers, where he brings up what he calls the manifest image and the scientific image. And the manifest image is the image that generally we all start with. It's an image of medium-sized colored objects. It's the image of ourselves as being rational agents, as being persons worthy of, of moral respect. It's a world of reasons where we give reasons to each other and we understand ourselves as being propelled by reasons. And then there's the scientific image, which is again, an image of causation. It's an image of a clockwork mechanism of quarks and and cells and tissues. And it's not a world where it's clear how something like a reason is going to get any traction there. It's not a world where something like morality is going to get traction there. And so he thought philosophy was the attempt to give ourselves stereoscopic vision, is his phrase. This idea of how do we 
connect this image of ourselves as being receptive to reasons and being moral agents versus ourselves as being a collection of atoms and cells and tissues. And so I think one thing that's nice about shows like Black Mirror is I think they bring this out in, a, in an inviting way to think about in, in shows like The Matrix, for example, or movies like The Matrix, excuse me, do a similar thing. And so, yeah, and I think there's a lot to dig in on that topic. I mean, it goes all the way back to Plato and, and before him to this question about what's the relationship between appearance and reality. And there's all sorts of fun answers to that question. I, I'd love to explore those types of those questions. So the, the other thing that, that uh, caught my attention on this idea is something that I've always to- sort of toyed with is, is what constitutes who we are. Are we our thoughts or are we the thinkers of our thoughts? And which one of those is truly the, the real, if you will, the real us? Yeah. And I think this gets back to, to Hume's argument where Hume would say, there just is a procession of thoughts. There just is a kind of parade of, of sensations and thoughts and so on that are, are connected in the right way. So that's why, for example, when I feel pain, you don't say, ouch, <laughs> because there are pains over here that don't causally interact with, with your vocal cords over there. And so someone like Hume would be skeptical about this thinker that's above the thoughts, so to speak. And that could be a little distressing, I think, to people to think that, what do you mean there's no me? It's just, it's just a grab bag of, of thoughts and feelings. And I think it's, it's scary to some people. Oh, yeah, it definitely can be. And I mean, I think I'm fairly, I'm fairly ignorant, I have to admit, of the Eastern traditions. But I think seeing this as a good thing is a part of the Buddhist tradition, at least of seeing how this actually connects us with other people in a way that we might have been resistant to before, that it's an illusion that we are separate, for example. I'm not sure who I think is right, to be honest. I, I don't know, you know what I think about that. My answer to that has always been the idea that we, we have to be the thinker. Mm-hmm. Because if, if you're the thought you don't recognize it as existing. It just, it enters your head, it enters your mouth. There's no cognitive ability to, to not say the thing you think. Mm-hmm. So you have to be the, the thinker in my mind. That's the only way that the, the whole reality works and the whole self, the whole inner life, I guess, is the word I'm trying to find. Yeah. This is, is that ability to have the thought and not have it come out, I guess. Yeah. So I think, I think so. I'll, I'll play the role of a human for a moment just to, to kind of see what we can generate here. I think one response might be that some of the thoughts can be, can be about other thoughts, I think would be a way to, to deal with this. So, you know, amongst the thoughts that are rattling around in my brain is the thought that I'm in Detroit, is the thought that the sky is blue, et cetera. But I can also have thoughts about my thoughts. I can think, oh, that was a stupid thought. Or I can think, you know, I wish I wasn't experiencing this pain or something like that. And so there could be like one way to think of this as an illusion and still have something like this kind of self-control that you're talking about, although self-control would be ultimately a misnomer if this view is right, would be that some of the ideas that are in the, in the procession can kind of be about other thoughts in the procession. And so I wonder what you think about that idea and if that addresses it at all. So, so in other words, you, the, the ability to have a thought about a thought is, yeah. is what we're, we're talking about. Yeah. I think that though is what, what makes 
the human who it is or what it is, mm-hmm. right? It's we no other creature that we know of anyway, to my knowledge, has that ability to be cognitive of itself as itself. I think that, I don't know. I don't know how, how to explain it. I haven't made sense to anybody but my head. Yeah. Just to let you know, that's actually highly controversial. There are a lot of comparative psychologists who think that there are other animals besides human beings who are self-aware to some degree. The work is kind of highly controversial. There's something called the mirror test where, you know, we can look in a mirror and we know, oh, that's me. Mm-hmm. Um, and not all animals can do this. Uh, other animals, some animals will look in a mirror and be like, oh, who's that other uh, cat, you know, over there or something like that. But there are animals who pass, so to speak, the mirror test. So some of the higher primates do, um, dolphins do, I think. And so we might not be the only creatures on earth that are self-aware. I think that would be an, an amazing idea if that was the case. I, I think it's kind of a, I don't know the right word, nar- nar- uh, narcissistic to think that that we are the only ones that have that ability. Yeah. And I think it's, I, I think one thing that is is hard is to understand exactly what the ability amounts to. So, you know, how do we tell? I mean, so we have this mirror test, for example, you know, so that what they do is like one example is they will, they will paint, if I'm remembering one example, right, is they'll paint a like a red dot on a gorilla's head and they'll show the gorilla a mirror and the, and the gorilla can, can look at the mirror and recognize, Oh, that's, that's the same spot that's actually on me. And they'll, they'll do this, you know, by pointing at what's on their spot and they won't try to point at the mirror itself. Mm-hmm. I, in, in fairness, and th- this is a controversial idea, what exactly, what exactly this shows. So I worry that maybe this just shows that these creatures are, are good at the geog- uh, the uh, geometry of mirrors, <laughs> for example, um, so that they can they just know that you know all right if I if I know how light reflects I mean and so if it's 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 really just they're tracking the geometry of how mirrors work then it's it doesn't it won't lead to it won't lead to very inflated a very inflated picture of the kind of self awareness that the higher primates and dolphins, et cetera, are capable of. And so this is all very controversial. I just thought it would be important to see that this might not be unique to human beings, but the, the it's still very much of a question whether that's true or not. Taking that that idea, though, what is where does the value come from in being able to to recognize yourself? Does that is that what gives us the reality? Is the ability to to perceive ourselves in our surroundings, or are we? like we talked about, or like you talked about before, like the, the matrix idea where if we're all in this computer simulated program anyway, maybe it's just the computer giving us our reality mm-hmm. or my other favorite idea. And sorry to, to throw too many things out there, but the idea of the, the hologram universe. Yeah. I, I love that idea. I don't know enough, enough about it to really talk about it in any sort of intelligent way. Mm-hmm. I just think that whole idea is, is really fascinating because that puts a whole nother spin on reality because then reality doesn't exist except for in the mind or the perceived nature of it. And then reality is different for every single human being that has perceived that hologram or that matrix. I'll take the first part. So the question about the value of self-awareness, I imagine one component of the value is that it allows us to be explicit about our actions and behavior and to be able to change course, so to speak. So I can recognize, I can think about what I'm doing and come to find that, for example, maybe I'm not acting in a way that's appropriate, or I am not acting in a way that's going to further my goals. And so I can explicitly think about those questions. And I imagine that that's going to be the value of self-awareness for a creature 
is that it allows for a more executive control over its behavior. So almost like a, a morality then. I mean, it could be a morality. It could be related to that. But I even think just prudential value. I think if you want to, if you want to get buff at the gym, for example, you can, if you can, if you couldn't, if you weren't self-aware, if you couldn't think about yourself as yourself, it's hard to imagine how you would be able to even have the thoughts about what is more or less effective in terms of building muscle or being able to run faster, jump higher than you were before. I think morality is definitely part of it, but I think even in more prudential matters, just you can you can monitor yourself and figure out if you are acting as you want to be acting in a way. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think kind of, you know, the question with the either the the hologram universe or the matrix idea in terms of what reality is, is that, I mean, there's a sense where, again, I think it's similar to the situation we are already in. It's a question about, so in the matrix, it turns out reality is a big giant computer or something like that. Um, or in the hologram universe, I guess we're all computer programs or something like that, depending on how that gets cashed out. And, you know, what's funny is that in the world we live in now, it's all basically, you know, fields and quarks, you know, flying around and mostly empty space and all that kind of stuff. But that's not the world we perceive. We perceive a world of, of jackets and desks and computers, but none of those, none of those phrases is going to be used in a fundamental physics. And so I, I think it's interesting to think about how even putting aside the matrix of the hologram ideas, how it's already true in a way, how the world we perceive is radically different than the world we, than the world the way it is, at least according to our best scientific theories. Which kind of messes with your head, at least my head, when you think about it, because that that means that literally nothing that we perceive is what it is. Everything is just this dead, it will maybe not dead, but this empty space of just nothing and nothing is there. And that means that reality is totally in the mind, totally in the, the thought and in the thinker. So I, I'm not sure I would interpret it that way. I wouldn't go that far, I don't think, because, I mean, so I think the question goes to whether there are, I mean, I think the question is kind of what the relationship between fundamental physics is going to be. I mean, it's the seller's question. Like, what's the relationship between what fundamental physics tells us and our kind of naive conception of the world? And we might think, well, you know, fundamental physics tells me this desk is fully, is full of empty space and all this kind of stuff. Does that mean the desk isn't real? I'm not sure if that follows. We might be our, the way we perceive it might not match very closely with how it is. Um, but I'm not sure if that means it's not real anymore. Um, it's certainly, there is something here which is made up of quarks and gluons and whatever other fun stuff the physicists cook up. And even if the desk itself isn't real, again, this kind of gets in back into meteorological nihilism because that's kind of their view. Their, their fun way of talking is that there's no desks. There are, there are atoms arranged desk-wise is their kind of fun kind of phrase. For this, and I, I think, I think a a coherent question or a coherent view would be that the desk is perfectly real. It's just very, it's just different than how we thought of it, and that there still is a optimistic story to tell about how we were able to figure out what the desk is made of. It's not like we're totally in the dark. It just means that we're not going to be able to learn the deep facts about the way the world is solely by looking at it with our eyeballs. But then does that not change the the nature of reality? If we learn that the, like, for instance, we used to think that the earth was the center of, of the universe. Mm-hmm. 
And then when that changed, that fundamentally changed the way we view space and, and the world around us. Yeah. Is that not kind of similar to what's going to happen once we realize that the, the reality is the desk isn't really the desk. The desk is just this collection of atoms and, and things that, that are just empty and there, there's not really anything tangible there as you dive deeper into the, the quantum realm of it. Yeah, I, I imagine I imagine it will. I, I think the question is, do we want to describe that as changing reality itself? And I think, I mean, we certainly could. I mean, that's a way we could talk. But I also think that I, I would suspect that the reality is the way it is, regardless of how we think about it, and just our ideas about reality change. I think that's another way of describing what's going on. And then when we went from a kind of geocentric to a heliocentric view about the universe, or when we went from a Newton to a to an Einstein, that certainly radically changed our perception, our beliefs about the world, but I don't think it changed the world itself. And I, so I think that's another way of kind of, of, of diagnosing what's going on here. Okay. Well, then, then let me ask you this, because I don't necessarily disagree, mm-hmm. but what would you say then to the idea of perception is reality? Your reality is what you perceive. And if you change what you perceive, mm-hmm. you then change your reality. I mean, I think I would just say my hunch is that that's false, <laughs> which might be a boring answer. There, I think there's a concern that that kind of view tends to erase the distinction that we bring to the table when we distinguish perception and reality. So to to talk about, for example, uh, Bishop Barclay, who had a view like this, where he said to be was to be perceived. So he had a fairly explicit view along these lines. But he he was helped along with God. He had God in his story, and God was the job of God was, amongst other things, to kind of keep an eye on everything. So God was perceiving everything all the time, so that you know when you turn your back on somebody and then look back at them. It's not as though they cease to exist and then reappear because God is in the picture to look at everybody all the time. So we have a bit of stability. Um, But if we don't have that, I mean, some people do, some people don't have that, that story to tell or to kind of bring it to their metaphysics. It would seem to suggest that instead of, you know, I thought this, but I, I learned I was wrong. It's, it's unclear how anybody could be wrong about anything. And we could, you know, change how we talk, uh, but it seems like we are, we don't have to change how we talk about these things. And that we, we bring in this distinction between what we perceive and what's real to serve a purpose. And that, that purpose kind of gets obliterated if we just equate what we perceive and what is real. I don't know. I think a lot of people, whether good or bad, I think a lot of us do that. We perceive that that the thing we perceive is the reality. Mm-hmm. And I think that like you were talking about with with the God looking at you thing, I, I think uh, the, the layman's term for that, correct me if I'm wrong, would be if a tree falls in the woods, right? If you're not there, it doesn't make a sound. Yeah. And so our reality then would be that I wasn't there. I didn't hear the tree. I didn't see the tree fall. So therefore the tree did not make that sound because I did not perceive it. So I, I mean, I definitely, I definitely agree. I think generally most of us, I would say probably all of us, some of the time, just consider what we perceive and what we think to be what's real. I, I definitely agree with you on that. I think the question is whether that makes it real. I think that's a separate, that's a separate question. You know, so I perceive I'm looking out the window and I, I'm looking at beautiful Detroit and I see, you know, these cars going by and I see 
the water tower in the distance. And I, I think these things are real. And But I don't think that requires that. I also hold to the view that what makes those things real is that I see them. But I definitely agree that I think for everyone, most of the time, just takes it for granted that what they're seeing is what's real. And I think they're right most of the time. Probably. I know that one thing that kind of messed with my head years ago was I used to work third shift at a aluminum extrusion plant and I'd take the same route home every day. And and one day I was going home and I saw this fountain and I'd never seen this fountain before. And I went home to my wife who's lived in this area her entire life. And I went, hey, sweetie, did you know they, they built a fountain on, I forget the name of the road, but they built a fountain on this road. Mm-hmm. She's like, yeah, that fountain has been there since I was a kid. <laughs> and so that, that blew my mind because I'm thinking, well, to me, that fountain was not real until I saw it and perceived it, but it's been real this entire time. So you're right. Perception doesn't equate to reality because that fountain was real. I just had never perceived it. Yeah, I think that's a great example. Uh, there, and there's all sorts of amazing examples of this, of how of the role attention plays in, in perception. So there are these remarkable experiments where they show people videos of basketball. I think it's, if I remember correctly, it's a video of a basketball game. And in the basketball, and at some point, a, a person in a gorilla suit um, appears, but most people don't notice the person in the gorilla suit, um, mm-hmm. even though they're looking at it and it's fairly, it's not hidden. It's not like a Where's Waldo situation. It's just there, the video is made to kind of play with the attention mechanisms behind perception. And I, I, again, I think this is another example where the video is what the video is. The video is of a basketball game and a person in a gorilla suit. Um, but most people, the first time they, they look at it, they don't, they don't notice the man in the gorilla suit. And I think like the, the, your, the case with the, uh, the fountain that you pass by every day but didn't notice, I think in the video is the video. And the video was a video of a basketball game and a person in a gorilla suit, regardless of whether or not people notice it first. It's not as though the person in the gorilla suit was added you know, as soon as we pay attention to it. And again, I think this kind of, this is a very useful distinction to have when we're talking about the world and ourselves. I mean, this idea of not noticing things. Oh, I didn't notice that before. And how if we equated perception and reality, we wouldn't be able to talk that way. I I know which video you're talking about. I used to teach anger management and I use that video a lot. Oh, really? Okay. So yeah, I I love that video. It's the first time I saw it. I never saw the guy in the gorilla suit because it's people in a black and white shirt and they're passing back basketballs back and forth. Mm-hmm. You tell people to count how many times they pass the basketballs. Oh, I gotcha. Yeah, it's I love it. If if anybody out there hasn't seen it, but we've kind of messed it up for you already. But <laughs> play that trick on somebody else and and they will it will mess with you. I had guys fighting me, literally wanting to physically fight me because they're like, Man, you changed that video. Like, no, dude, it's, <laughs> it's the same video. Yeah. I love doing that to people. It's so much fun. Yeah. I love the, the, uh, the visual illusions because yeah, that's used in philosophy, um, in philosophy of perception. Um, cause there's questions about, there's a question about whether did your perception change when you notice the man in the suit in the gorilla suit, or was it, no, your perception was the same, just you're changing what you're paying attention to in what you're perceiving is kind of the question. It's one use of this, this video in the philosophy of perception. And that actually brings up an interesting point because I've heard it said many, many times that we perceive way more than, than we can actually handle contemplating. Mm-hmm. The, the brain brings in more information than we'll ever be able to use. Yeah, absolutely. 
does that sort of that sort of plays with that idea though, where where you only perceive so much, and therefore everything is still real, but you only perceive it later on. I guess uh, for, if you know where I'm headed with this, my brain is totally yeah. fried today. No, yeah, definitely. I mean, if if you look at the signals being sent to your retina, for example, it's just a cascade of of information that's being that you, is hitting in your retina, and and yet the world you perceive is a fairly stable place. So I'm looking at the inside of my room. Things are basically stationary. And as I you know, turn my head to, to look at what's going on in my room, you know, I see different parts of the room. This is how I perceive it. But when I'm changing, I mean, just the difference in retinal stimulation you're getting at every second is just mind-blowing. And yet, through, despite the just cavalcade, the waterfall, of information that your retina is getting, you're able to perceive a more or less stable world around you. And so, yeah, absolutely. Just it's remarkable. So then does that lead credence to the idea that our attention is actually what creates our reality and not our perception? Mm, It could. I, I definitely know that it definitely could. I mean, so I know that, I mean, one way to think about perception is to think of it like a picture um, as a very kind of, there's a naive metaphor for perception and that, you know, as you turn your head and look at different things, it's like you're getting different pictures. And so I know the attention people would say that when you watch the the film and then you watch it again and notice the person in the gorilla suit, it's like getting two different videos. It's like you're perceiving two different videos where other people will say, no, it's the same video. Like it's the same video in your mind's eye, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But you can, your attention is like a spotlight and you're moving your, the spotlight to different places. I'm fairly ignorant about this, this debate, but I definitely, I mean, attention is playing some role in terms of, in, in terms of what we perceive. I think how it plays the role. I mean, right now, you know, I'm looking at my webcam, for example, and I can count the, the little divots that make up the microphone and I can really focus in on the little Logitech logo where before I just, you know, I've just received a webcam and I didn't really, until I thought about using this example, I wasn't really focused in on those tiny little details. And so there's only so much information we need from our perception at any given time. Mm -hmm. And if we just paid attention to everything that's available, we just would never leave the house. (laughs) And so, yeah. We got we to gotta cut it off at some point. All right. So we're, we're coming up on the end and I want to make sure I do this for everybody. I want to give you the last word on this. So given the last word, what would you say is our reality? Where does it come from? Man, it's a heavy question. You gave me the easy one. Um, what is reality? I think, you know, I want to say, I think I'm going to slightly skirt the question and I'm going to say it's incredibly difficult mm-hmm. to know. I'm going to say that there's been amazing work in the laboratories and in the field and in hospitals and in and everywhere. There are various you know, scientists and medical professionals and engineers working incredibly difficult, working incredibly hard to answer this question. And there are historians and there are anthropologists and there are philosophers. Even we, we, we're, we play a small role. And that I, I think to use a phrase from Richard Feynman, I don't think nature is going to let us relax. And then I think a question like, what is reality is something that we are working hard every day to find the answer. And we have some good ideas, I think, um, especially depending on which field we're working in. I think 
in fields like neuroscience, cognitive science, psychiatry, et cetera, we are more in the dark. And yet still every day we're learning more and more. And so I think with a question like this, I think it's important to have these conversations. And then also to recognize at the end of the day, this is a lifelong pursuit for millions of people around the world, uh, perhaps billions, and that we have to thank them (laughs) for their work. And I I don't think it's easy. To me, the last word I would want is for people to recognize how difficult the world is. And how and to and to give a respect to the question that I think it deserves. I would agree. I think that's a, a great place to end it. On that note, I want to give you a chance to to let everybody know where they can find you, how they can reach you. I know you you have a podcast, uh, so just give everybody your your contact information and how they can find your show. Yeah, absolutely. So the podcast is a none dare call it ordinary, and we are a podcast. I like to say we're a podcast in the history of ideas except the ideas are mainly from con artists and cranks and other chronic failures. So we cover pseudoscience, alternative medicine, revisionist history, kind of political extremism, cults, all this kind of stuff. All the bad ideas you can imagine, we're probably talking about them. And we are on Twitter, at NDCIO. We are on Instagram, at NoneDareCallItOrdinary. And you can send us an email, NoneDareCallItOrdinary at gmail.com. You can give us suggestions for new episodes and our episodes also, you can download them wherever your podcasts are served. And you can also find links on our website, nonedarecallitordinary.com. And then I'll just say, I am also on Twitter at Dylan, D-Y-L-A-N-C-Darty, D-O-H-E-R-T-Y. And I do some philosophy stuff on there, but I'm much more active on our Twitter account, to be perfectly honest. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, Dylan, I greatly appreciate the conversation. It was amazing. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me. All right. And we will talk to everybody again soon. Okay. So there it is. Is it philosophy? Go to our website at www.isitphilosophy.com and leave us a comment. We'd love to hear from you on Twitter and Facebook as well. Help us grow by going onto iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast and subscribe and take a moment and leave a review. Until next time, question everything, seek your truth, and don't be afraid to speak your truth.